Well, it's an honor to bring God's word to you today. The man here is no one special, but I hope by the end of this message, we will all be praising him who is most glorious. We study the word to redirect our affections, our attention to him who deserves our focus. So I pray that this message will help you to focus on our God today. We will be looking at Psalm 46, a familiar psalm for most believers. It has often been called Luther's psalm for its inspiration of his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Most commentators connect this psalm with an event that happened in 2 Kings 18 and 19 when the Assyrians were assaulting Jerusalem. King Hezekiah was receiving threats from Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was defying not only the Israelites, but defying God Almighty, saying, where is your God? Hezekiah prays to the Lord for deliverance, and the Lord miraculously saves them. The title information on the psalm reads, To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. So this was given to the choir master, to the music leader, to teach as corporate worship. According to the Alamoth, most likely refers to a tune or a particular pitch at which to sing. And then of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah refer to those descendants from David's day who were appointed to serve in the sanctuary in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. So we know that God's people were meant to sing this psalm together again and again, praising him for his presence among them. And that's what we find here in Psalm 46, the presence of God. So take your copy of God's word and let's read Psalm 46 together. This is the inerrant, infallible word of God. The next words I read are the most important words you will hear from me today. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you are God. And you have set yourself in our midst. Give us understanding as we study your truth today. 
Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Impart your truth to us today. O God, may only what is pleasing to you be remembered from this message, and may what is done in the flesh be discarded and forgotten. Be exalted in our hearts today. For Christ's sake and his glory we pray. Amen. So Psalm 46, we have three stanzas in it. If you see it's separated by each time you see the word Selah. So the first section is verses 1 through 3. And we see here that there is imminent salvation. Imminent salvation. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So after the title, the first word of the text, both Hebrew and our English translation is God, Elohim. This is not a psalm about man or what he has done. This is not about our armies or our fortresses. This is a declaration of who God is, what he has done. He is the one and only. The sons of Korah are exalting God as their refuge and strength. The nation of Israel was well aware of God's actions on her behalf, having witnessed his faithfulness again and again. This praise ought not be limited, however, to only times of trouble, for God is never wanting in time of affliction or need. God not only was our refuge and strength, he still is. It is in times of trouble, however, that his consistent care and protection and sustaining of his people is most recognized. It's almost as if trouble comes so that we worship him with a greater understanding. So he is our refuge, literally a place of trust. He is the shelter we run to in a storm. He is our protection from danger. When we hide ourselves in him, we dwell secure. As Psalm 32, 7 says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He is also our strength. Not only our refuge, but our strength. This is vigor, power, firmness, and courage. We are not only secure from trouble as we hide in him, but he stands against the enemy. He is our strength. He is our strength, not us. We are in a place of fortification that not only defends us, but also threatens our adversary. Listen to the words in Isaiah 13, what God will do to the wicked. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. And the Assyrians were definitely in that camp, in pompous pride and ruthless. So God is our refuge and strength, our salvation, and he is our help in trouble. He is our present help in trouble. 
He is our very present help in trouble. The text does not dismiss trouble as if there is no such thing. We've been reminded for the past few weeks from Pastor Marty that in this world you will have tribulation. Yet so often we behave as if he has not overcome the world. He has. So we need the right perspective, the biblical perspective, the perspective of Psalm 46, 1. Here is the trouble, and we see it bearing down on us, yet here is God, very present. He is closer than the trouble itself. He's more present. He is our salvation, our imminent salvation. Verses 2 and 3, Therefore we will not fear that the earth gives way, that the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Well, this is revelation in response. Verse 1 is the truth claim. And verses 2 and 3 are the logical actions and attitudes that must follow. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Because we have this knowledge and in response to who God has revealed himself to be, we will not behave foolishly. Or at least we shouldn't behave foolishly. We do. How irrational it is to fear in light of who God is. The sons of Korah give us powerful imagery to put our faith to the test. Though the earth gives way, we've seen footage of landslides, acres of earth careening down the, the mountainside. Though mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, again, picturing ground breaking apart, perhaps even an earthquake. The waters of the sea are roaring, foaming, swelling and as they thunderously crash against the mountains the seeming immovable slice of earth shudders and trembles so what can man do to stop these natural disasters will you hold back the mountain will you still the earthquake will you silence and tame the sea Man is powerless over these things. Let's put each one of us in those situations. Are you still without fear? This calls for strong faith. This is not apathy or just, well, I don't have fear. There's an absence of fear. No, this is emboldened confidence in God that confronts disaster. I know who God is. Don Wurtzen said this, Worry is an inappropriate response for God's child. Anxiety, mental distress, and emotional agitation yield to trust in the unshakable, immutable, omnipotent God of the universe. He is the master of all nature, and I must make him the master of my troubled soul. Perhaps you need to encounter God as refuge and strength within the recesses of your troubled heart. 
he has revealed himself. How will you respond? We come to the end of the first stanza in this psalm, marked off by the word Selah. The sons of Korah call us to meditate on what we have just read. What seems unmovable, unlikely, terrible, irresolvable, irreparable, catastrophic, disastrous, and doomed. God is our refuge and strength in the face of that. Charles Spurgeon beautifully captures this pause in the song. Listen to this lengthy quote. In the midst of such a scene, the music may well come to a pause, both to give the singers breath and ourselves time for meditation. We are in no hurry, but can sit us down and wait while earth dissolves and mountains rock and oceans roar. Ours is not the headlong rashness which passes for courage. We can calmly confront the danger and meditate upon terror, dwelling on its separate items and united forces. The pause is not an exclamation of dismay, but merely a rest in music. We do not suspend our song in alarm, but retune our harps with deliberation amidst the tumult of the storm. It were well if all of us could say, Selah, under tempestuous trials. But alas, too often we speak in our haste, lay our trembling hands bewildered among the strings, strike the lyre with a rude crash, and mar the melody of our life song. He is our imminent salvation. And this demands an appropriate response. The next stanza, verses 4 through 7, we have embedded security. He is our embedded security. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. So in contrast to roaring seas, we now have a river, water that does not bring terror, but rather gladness. Life comes from this river rather than the destructive waves of the sea. Water was a precious commodity to the people of Israel. Jerusalem was not built close to a river, yet Jerusalem was the capital city, the center and hub of political and religious life for the Jews. King Hezekiah had built an underground water system from the spring of Gihon in Kidron to the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. And remnants of this amazing feat remain to this day. Some scholars believe that the Assyrians, with knowledge of this water system, could have cut off their water supply somewhere along the way during their siege. And with its restoration, the sons of Korah would view this stream's return with great joy and gladness. The water has come back. Jerusalem is often referred to as the city of God, the holy habitation, which was holy because of God's presence. Before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the temple of God was in Jerusalem, dedicated to his praise and glorified by his presence. It's where God met with his people. Well, the river in God's city is a picture of God's sustaining hand. 
his gracious resource of life for them. It was grace given to them. And it is promised for the future. In Zechariah 14, verse 8, it says, On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. So instead of waters flowing to Jerusalem, they will be flowing out from it as the rivers described in the Garden of Eden did. It is a worldwide testament to the Creator and sustainer of life. And in Ezekiel 47, we find the source of that river will be coming from the sanctuary of the temple. The source of this river is God himself. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So still speaking of Jerusalem, God is in her midst. And it's called the city of God because he is there. It's rooted in the Lord and God planted himself there. God is in the midst of her. He has determined to be with his people. So this psalm, again, is about the presence of God. What is the result of his presence? She shall not be moved. The enemy must first move God before the city can be moved. What a contrast from the mountains that were moved into the heart of the sea. Indeed, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. In Isaiah 10, God is announcing judgment on Assyria for having put confidence in themselves. They thought... They were an immovable force, and so did Israel. After the judgment takes place, Israel discovers something in Isaiah 10, verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Israel regarded Assyria as indestructible, yet the truly immovable force was the Lord, the never-failing bulwark or primary support of the structure. Now Israel leaned on the Lord. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So notice the words shall, will, and when. They're all terms of future salvation. And it is a sure fact that salvation will come from the hand of God. Oh, how we need patience for God's timing. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And his help will come like the morning. When light first streams across the expanse, when the first gleam catches the eye, God's deliverance is proven true. Now remember the account of Israel's deliverance from the Assyrians in 2 Kings 19. Let me read verses 32 through 34 for you. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come 
into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. So here is the promise that God is in the midst of her and that she will not, she shall not be moved. So what about God will help her when morning dawns? Well, verse 35. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. The morning proved God's deliverance. God will help her when morning dawns. Israel truly had embedded security. Well, back to Psalm 46. Verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The nations raging is referring not only to the assault of the Assyrians, but against any people group, any earthly power that supposes authority over and against God. These are ravenous peoples who assemble to war against God's people. And it's a call back to the roaring waters of the sea. They're roaring, they're swelling, they're crashing. Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3 fleshes this out a little more. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The next phrase in Psalm 46 verse 6 is, The kingdoms totter. And this seems to be the effect of the previous clause, the nations rage. So the nations rage and then the kingdoms totter. If you go back and read 2 Kings 18 and 19, the Assyrians were weakened because of their siege on Israel. Yet their wickedness blinded them to their own welfare. Not to mention they're going up against Almighty God. You are weakened. You're tottering. This is the reminiscent of the mountains trembling and moving into the heart of the sea. And the following phrase is also cause and effect. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The melting of the earth or the earth giving way, as verse 2 says, is the disintegration of God's enemy by God's word. He created the universe by his voice and he can destroy it by the same. After the nations rage in Psalm 2, the Lord responds. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. They didn't stop him for a minute. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Verse 7. 
And here's where the Lord utters his voice. One little word shall fell him. This is disaster meted out by a sovereign God. His purposes will stand as sure as his word stands. He has set himself in the midst of his people. He is sustaining his people. He has pledged to help his people. And no amount of raging by the nations will thwart his determination to fulfill his promise. Praise his name. He will prove himself faithful yet again and teach his children true dependence on him. Psalm 40, 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So his presence remains. The Lord of hosts, or Lord Sabaoth, as the old version of the hymn says, is speaking to the far-reaching extent of his lordship. That he is the God of Jacob shows us that he is the author of the covenant, a proven and faithful shepherd. John Calvin says it like this, Our faith can be firmly fixed in God when we truly rest in these two divine attributes. His immeasurable power by which he can subdue the world, that he is the Lord of hosts. And his fatherly love declared in his covenantal word to Abraham, he is the God of Jacob. This God, this God is with us. And it's the restated reason for not fearing. Though infinitely beyond us in power, he gently shepherds us to himself the true fortress for our souls. Indeed, a mighty fortress is our God. And we have another Selah here marking off the second stanza. His presence prevails with us. And it's a necessary thing that he remains. Because not only do the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed, but our sinful flesh does as well. We impose ourselves against him, pitifully trying to rule and reign over our wayward lives. Were it not for Christ paying our sin debt and living perfectly before the Father, we would be poised to melt as God utters his voice. John Newton says, The almighty power which sustains the stars in their orbits is equally necessary to carry me home to heaven. He has to be with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The last stanza of this psalm, verses 8 through 11, we see very apparent authority. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. We are invited to observe something, something incredible. So he's saying, stop what you're doing and come look at this. Make note of this. Watch in order that you remember, what is it? The works of the Lord. 
The mighty actions of our omnipotent God ought to leave an impression on us, and yet we are so quick to forget his works. Psalm 111, verse 2, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Do you find yourself meditating on the works of the Lord? Be intentional about it. Study them and delight in the Lord. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He is awesome. What are these works? They are described as desolations. Come behold desolations. So he has brought desolations on the earth. What follows is the explanation of what these desolations are. The breaking of the bow, the shattering of the spear, and the burning of the chariots with fire. The phrase that sums it up, God makes wars cease to the end of the earth. All man-made instruments of destruction are destroyed. All weapons of might are crushed by his strength. His authority is on display to put an end to strife. The sons of Korah have witnessed this firsthand. Suddenly the Assyrian army was no more. God had in fact broken the bow, shattered the spear, and burned the chariots with fire. He had delivered his people. Come, behold what God has done. Verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord interjects his voice here. We have been directed in this psalm to truths about God with our intent focus upon him, and suddenly he speaks. Be still. And a popular translation of this is cease striving. It's a succinct command reflecting the last two verses. He commands the warring to cease. Be still. It's in the plural sense, speaking not just to the Israelite, but to all peoples, all nations everywhere. Be still and know that I am God, he says. The sinful hearts of man play God at every turn. We try to out, uh, control the outcome of history. Yet in truth, we are powerless to command God's universe so this is a call to all peoples to turn from self and turn to God. Admit to who he is. Submit to who he is. Stop denying the clear evidence that he is in control and you are not. He follows up this clear plan and purpose He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. No one is going to steal glory from the Lord. Sennacherib defied the Lord in 2 Kings 19. And then Hezekiah prayed. Listen to this account starting in verse 10 of 2 Kings 19. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah. And this is Sennacherib speaking. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. 
Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who are at Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? He lists nine kingdoms that the Assyrians had desolated. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but only the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. <clears throat> so now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand. And here's the reason Hezekiah asks for deliverance. Save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Well, this is in direct concert with what Psalm 46, verse 10 says. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It's Hezekiah's prayer answered. So the fear we ought to have is the fear of the Lord. His authority is what ought to move us, not natural disasters, not raging nations, not warring enemies. Be still and know that he alone is God. Where our last verse in Psalm 46, verse 11 says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So the sons of Korah restate their refrain. After exploring cosmic authority, this transcendent God is eminently with us again. Again, how irrational to fear anything but the Lord. Do politicians sovereignly rule and reign in your life? Does a virus truly determine your destiny? Consider the words of Matthew 10, verses 26 through 33. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? 
but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. How sorrowful it is when your actions and my actions effectively deny knowing our Savior. We are with Peter in the courtyard, swearing that we don't know the man. Just look at how I'm behaving. I act as if I have no place of refuge. I blatantly fret about anything that doesn't go my way. Anyone and anything has power over my emotional state. I am not glad at the sustaining hand of God. That he is with me seems to have no bearing on my day. My words are uttered without the thought of his hearing. I have no true confidence in his power to put things right. I am far from still. Rather, I am in a tizzy trying to make my own changes and then exalting myself for my efforts. This, sadly, is the testimony of many professing believers. Dear believer, we must look closer. We are approaching the Christmas season and when you hear the words, God with us, you cannot escape thoughts of Emmanuel. Jesus came, not to deliver you from natural disasters or wars, but from something far more fearful, from God's wrath on your own sin. If your own sin does not anger you more than all the evil in the world, you do not yet know the gravity of your offense. A right view of our greatest trouble would be that of our own sin. We would see it as an insurmountable foe were it not for Christ, our help, our present help, our very present help. Look closer, Christian. He is the true refuge from the wrath of God. We have the strength of the Holy Spirit to stand against that sin. Sin will not have the day. There is hope for the believer that we will not be moved. We are sealed for the day of redemption when morning dawns. He will bring an end to all hostilities, bringing desolations to our own sin. And at the end of it all, the whole universe will exalt him as they come and behold his glorious works. How can we keep silent about such a savior? Psalm 46 now becomes not just a respite for us in difficult times. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we should shout from the rooftops. God is our refuge and strength. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Your greatest problem, O sinner, your greatest problem, O sinner, is the presence of God. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God's presence is, 
for you, O sinner, is a death sentence. Turn from your sin. Take refuge in Christ and see the salvation of God. Know that he alone is God. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fall on Christ and find true gladness in him. Have no fear of this world. Rather, exalt him in reverence. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood that is his payment for sin and his righteousness, his perfect life. We dare not trust the sweetest frame or any other created thing, but wholly lean as the Israelites leaned on God. We lean on Jesus' name. So if you do not know him, if you are not saved from his wrath, turn to Christ today and be saved. So church, we must not be silent about our Savior. May our words, actions, the very attitude of our hearts reflect the truth of this psalm. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have revealed yourself so clearly in it that you are glorious and mighty and you have set yourself in our midst to save us. Lord, be exalted among all the nations in all the earth. Use us as your instruments to tell of your wondrous works. And Lord, may we rest in who you are, that our days are in your hand. You have hemmed us in before and behind, and you lay your hand on us. Lord, we are secure in you. Teach us true fear of you and use us for your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.